0: Welcome to Jepro I'm your host, Lakshdatta. We're live from day five of ZJLF 2019, and the session you're about to listen to is called The Future is Now. Meredith Broussard and Toby Walsh in conversation with Anupama Raju.
1: Good morning, everyone. And Thank you for being here. So, uh, as you know, this is going to be a discussion on artificial intelligence. Uh, perhaps 50 years from now, uh, we would have a robot as a moderator. I'm not sure, but till such time, uh, I'm happy to be in conversation with uh, two very special people who've devoted their lives to understanding uh, AI. So uh, this question is to both of you, and I'd really like to know, how did you both find your calling in AI? How did it all begin? Would you like to start, Meredith?
0: Sure. Uh, thanks. I'm really excited to be here. Um, so I have, a, uh, I have kind of a complicated uh, history. I started my career as a computer scientist, and then I quit to become a journalist, and I came back to uh, computer science as a data journalist. So data journalism is the practice of finding stories and numbers and using numbers to tell stories. So what I do now is I, I write computer code in order to commit acts of investigative reporting.
1: Fantastic. Toby? Uh,
2: so, so I started dreaming about this as a very, as a very young boy. Um, back then it was a very analog world. We didn't have uh, personal computers. We didn't have uh, games consoles. We didn't have mobile phones. Um, I, I didn't have any digital devices. Um, but it's, it's a nice story to say that it was, um, it was books. It was the idea, the dreams in books that gave me the idea that we should think about this wonderful technology and try and build it. And I wanted to be part of that future. So. Uh, The answer is that scientists actually work within the envelope of the dreams that writers tell us. And so I read Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke, and they wrote about a future full of robots and intelligent machines because our future is full of robots and intelligent machines. And it's taken longer, but now the nice thing is I think the rest of the world is waking up to the idea of those dreams that those writers planted in my mind uh, those 40 or 50 years ago.
1: Fantastic. Thank you. And talking of books, um, today is the official launch of the uh, paperback version of Meredith's book, Artificial Unintelligence. Can we have a round of applause for that? So, uh, Thank you so much. Do buy it if you haven't bought it already, and there will be a book signing after the session. Um, You know, a lot of fiction, um, you know, movies like Terminator and The Space Odyssey, I'm sure, how many of you have watched Terminator here? There you go. So a lot of movies and a lot of fiction uh, have kind of portrayed uh, computers and machines as these evil things that take over humanity. And they've kind of put the fear of the Lord in in all of us. So what is there to uh, fear about artificial intelligence? And what is there to embrace about it?
0: I think there's very little to fear. Uh, Hollywood has colored our ideas about artificial intelligence a lot. And so I think it's important to make the distinction between the Hollywood kind of AI and mm. <laughs> the real kind of AI. Uh, so I like to start with a definition sure. of artificial intelligence because we talk a lot about AI without uh, sometimes without being very specific about what we're talking about. Um, so artificial intelligence is a branch of computer science, the same way that algebra is a branch of mathematics. And inside artificial intelligence, you've got lots of, uh, lots of different subfields, like uh, you know, there's machine learning, there's natural language processing, there's expert systems, there's other stuff. Uh, but machine learning is the one that's really popular right now. And so there's been a little bit of linguistic confusion where uh, when people say artificial intelligence now in the business context, usually what they mean is machine learning being used for business. Uh, so like when you go to the airport and you see those big signs that say AI, cyber, blah, blah for your business, mm. and they have those like menacing pictures, like, <laughs> that's uh, that generally means machine learning. Uh, and machine learning, one way of understanding it is that it's basically computational statistics on steroids. So we've got that. And then we've got uh, two concepts of general AI and narrow AI. And general AI is the Hollywood stuff. Uh, you know, It's really fun to imagine, and it's the killer robots, and uh, it's, you know, it's really entrancing. Um, but it's not real. And narrow AI is what we have, and it is mathematical. And I'm not that scared of math. Okay. <laughs> That's great.
1: Toby, what, what is your view?
2: Well, it, it's, at the moment, it's not malevolence. It's not we're going to, the, the robots are going to take over. It's not any of these mm. Terminator things that we should be worried about. It's incompetence. Mm. That we're actually, uh, we're giving decisions to machines, and they're actually not capable of making those decisions in a way that's fair or meets the values of the society that we would like it to be. So um, I'm much more worried in the short term that we're handing responsibility to machines and we haven't really worried carefully enough about the consequences of that and, and what sort of world it's going to be. But, but equally, I don't think we can dismiss those those fears that people have because they're, they're deep-rooted stories, the creational stories that run through cultures that say something about what sort of world we are expecting in 100 or 200 years time
1: right uh, so in in your book uh, 2062 the the world that ai made you refer to a future which would be kind of you know devoid of chaos and kind of clinical um now maybe as a writer as a poet my concern is this and maybe that is my fear too uh a lot of beauty comes out of chaos. Um, in a world that is devoid... Welcome of... to India, <laughs> the land
2: of chaos. Uh,
1: in a world devoid of chaos, how do you think uh, it would uh, influence our imagination? That's, I mean, that's
2: a really interesting question. I should, I should probably start by saying, why is the book twi- entitled 2062? Sure. That's because when I surveyed 300 of my colleagues... That was when, on average, they expected machines would be as capable as humans. I should say there was huge uncertainty in their answers. Mm. Um, but the important thing to realize is it's not going to happen in the next couple of years, despite what all the newspapers would have you believe, but it's not going to take a 1,000 years. It's going to happen in the next 50 or 100 years, maybe if we're, if we're really bad at building the 200 years. But it's that sort of scale of problem that it could happen in our lifetimes, certainly the lifetimes of our children. Um, and I think that your question hints at, hints at actually the point that humans, we humans, we're terrible at making decisions. We're terribly irrational. Uh, we wouldn't buy lottery tickets if we really seriously understood um, decision making. And computers offer the promise, if we're careful, to actually have a much cleaner, more rational, fairer, World to be in. Mm. That doesn't mean that all the things that are important to us, uh, you know, we can, uh, we can just give to the machines the things that we want and leave the things that we like doing mm. um, to ourselves.
1: Yes, but at the same time, uh, you said a fairer world. Uh, don't have machines have their own bias? I mean, Meredith, what is your view? Well, at the end of the day,
2: there are bits of code that we're making these decisions. That's just mathematics. And mathematics. Mm doesn't have an opinion Hmm. but it reflects the values of the people who made it it reflects the values of the data maybe on which it was trained and we have lots of examples already today of how if we're not careful those decisions might be racist or sexist or ageist all the things that we spent the last 50 or 100 years in many of our societies trying to get rid of um and if we're not careful we'll we'll bake them back into these this decision-making that we give to machines. Um, but the promise, if we're careful, ultimately is that we could make better decisions with machines because machines don't have all of the terrible behavioral biases that humans have. And the behavioral psychology literature is full of examples of how we make bad decisions and how, um, how biased and racist we can be, even if we, even if we try to be very careful. So machines offer the promise... Um, that we could end up in a better world, a fairer world, a a world that's more transparent. But it's not if we don't work very hard at it, and we haven't worked hard
0: enough at that problem yet. Right. Meredith? Well, that idea that computers are better than people is an idea that I call techno-chauvinism, the idea Mm -hmm. that technology is superior to humans. Uh, And I think that uh, I would push back against that idea a little bit, um, because what computers do is very, very straightforward. And we do have uh, plenty of examples right now of how when we turn decision-making over to computational systems, these computational systems discriminate by default because the world is racist. The world is sexist. The world has uh, all kinds of economic inequality, of structural inequality. And what machine learning systems do, what AI systems do, is they take data about the world as it is, and then they just reproduce that. Right? So they will reproduce the world as it is without getting us to the world as it should be. And then when you take existing social problems and you reproduce them in code, it makes them hard to see and impossible to, uh, impossible to improve.
2: I'm going to be the techno optimist, Mr. And and, and and root for the machines because, at the end of the day, um, we already, I mean, machines are already superior to us in many respects. If, you, if you're Lisa Dahl, um then you know the computers play Go better than any human. The Chinese call it a, a Go God. So, clearly, there are some decisions that computers can make better than any humans. Um, the question is, I agree completely if we're not careful um, and we train it on data that has historical biases, because it is data, it reflects whatever, whatever society had been doing up to that point in time, that if we're not careful, then it may just perpetuate those biases. But there's no reason if we work out, well, what does it mean to be fair? Mm. What does it mean to be um, not to discriminate on the grounds of sex or race or age or, or any of these things that we would like Then we have a very precise mathematical object in which that can make those decisions that we can prove even uh, is fair, and that's better than humans. Not that we necessarily give all those. I'm not saying that we have to give all decisions to machines, but there are some decisions that we could do fair and better with machines.
0: Well, we could. I think Um, the idea that that like making a decision with math is superior to making a decision not with math is is an idea that we can challenge. Right. So we'll, we'll come
1: to that. And at this point, I just want to point out to the audience that this is not a debate. Uh, Toby is not for AI and Meredith is not anti-AI. We're just having oh, I a fascinating... I for AI. Okay.
2: I spent my whole life trying to build yes. <laughs> AI because, because I, th- I think it has the potential to make the world a better place. Better place, Go And we, technology has always well made the world ultimately a better place. And this is just another technology. Sure. But we've got to work out how to use the technology. How to use it, it and, yes. And yes. just just using the technology without thinking carefully about how it's going to make the world a better place. It's just the same as how chemistry doesn't make the mm. world a better place if we're not careful mm. about making sure that we're, we're not over-fertilizing the world. Right. Um, the nuclear industry isn't going to make the world a better place unless we think carefully about it. It's just another technology. It's another tool. And um, at the end of the day, Humans are the most supreme tool users. Thank
1: God. Yes. And, and yes. And both of you do talk about the choices we need to make today to make, um, you know, how to make AI work better for us. Uh, so that is interesting. And and in your book, uh, Meredith, let's talk about the title a bit. Uh, Artificial Unintelligence. And how did you... Uh, what, what was the idea behind it? Because it's really fascinating. Um.
0: Well, so literally, the first line of the book is "I love technology." <laughs> yeah. uh, and I opened the book with a uh, with a story about uh, when I was a little girl and I tried to build a robot and I thought that this robot was going to be just the greatest thing. I thought it was going to dance with me. I thought it was going to play fetch because my dog wouldn't play fetch. So I thought I could build a robot who could play fetch. And so I built this robot and I was so excited and I put in the batteries and, uh, and it didn't work because, you know, some part in the motor was broken. And so my mom explained to me that, uh, that this happens, that, um, Motors are made in factories and factories mm-hmm. have problems, and, you know, sometimes there are production problems. And so we got a new motor, and, you know, we eventually made it work. Um, but it was not as exciting as I thought it would be. And I've, I've kind of kept this lesson with me because often we imagine that technology is going to be so great, and it's going to be so transformative, and it's going to make us, like, a pro- you know, propel us into this amazing new world. And it does lots of really great things, but it's not really as magical as we imagine. So our imagination is, is magnificent, but often there are things that are broken mm-hmm. inside computers. And so I, I think we need to keep that in mind and be realistic about what technology can and can't do. Right. Um, so that's where the title came from.
1: Great. Uh, now, I just want to talk about a couple of trends which are highly popular right now. Let's talk about driverless cars. Um, so you've been – this is your first time in India. And, uh, Toby, what about you? Have you- uh,
2: I, I've been a few times, but I already, was already in a taxi um, two days ago that was run into by another another car. So. <laughs> so, so I can see that driving in India is a much greater challenge than driving almost anywhere else on the planet.
1: Right. It is a great experience. Yes. I, I drive. I'm the driver of the family. I can tell you for certain. <laughs> right. So what do you think about driverless cars and um, would they help or harm uh, a driving culture like India's?
2: Well, I, I, I think the first thing to point out is, for the world as a whole, they're a great benefit. Mm. One million people will die in road traffic accidents around the planet mm. in the next year, most of which are caused by bad driving. Mm. It's, not, it's not mechanical failure that causes most accidents. It's human error, mm. human judgment, again, that's wrong. And um, autonomous vehicles have the promise in the next 10 or 15 years to take that away in most countries. I think India is probably going to be about the last, from my experience of Indian driving, India is probably about the last place that, we could, that driverless cars are going to be able to penetrate just because um, people drive in, in, on both sides of the road. Um, it's just uh, going to be so much more challenging to build algorithms that can cope with Indian drivers. But um, ultimately, it will save us that that great carnage happens on our roads. Every the major cause of death in most Uh, Developed countries for men under the age of 30 is road traffic accident. Um, Most of us have know someone whose life has been touched, whose family has been touched by one of these tragedies. Mm -hmm. And so that will go away. Plus, there will be great economic benefits as well. Um, The cost of transporting goods will will plummet. So there's there's huge, great benefits. Um, And quite frankly, I hate driving. I I can't wait to have that time given to me Mm. so that I can... uh, get on with the important things in my life. So so there are benefits. It's not going to be as easy, I think, as some people think. Certainly in India, it's not going to be as easy as anyone can think. But um, we will get there, and it will make most people's lives, um, unless you're someone whose income is uh, driving, um, most people's lives, the rest of us, will make our lives much better. Um, But then we need to think about what happens to those people who are taxi drivers and truck drivers, rickshaw drivers, whose employment might be going away. That's an important part of the equation as well.
1: Yes, Meredith, driverless cars.
0: <laughs> uh, I am against driverless cars. Uh, I, one of the things I read about in the book is a ride that I took in a driverless car, in a very early driverless car, and uh, it almost killed me. Uh, the car just like drove straight toward this giant cement pillar in the middle of a parking lot, and it kind of screeched to a stop right beforehand. And the, uh, the engineers in the car kind of shrugged and said, oops. And the idea that they were, they were just so careless with human lives gave me pause. Uh, and so when you look at uh, really what's happening inside driverless cars, uh, how all of the sensing systems are working together, and how fragile those systems are, you become really skeptical of this uh, Of this vision of the driverless car future, which people have been talking about actually since one thousand nine hundred and ninety one and they 've been saying it 's coming soon it 's coming mm. soon I, so one of the things that uh, that I think about is the image sensing systems. So the way a driverless car works is uh, it has uh, it has all kinds of sensors on it, and the sensors have to take in the image data from the world around you and identify the objects and say is this object moving? Is it not moving? What rate is it moving at? And how do I need to react? Um, so if you do um, the captcha online and you do uh, you have to click all of the things that say, is this a stop sign? Or click all the boxes that include a stop sign. Um, that is uh, that is part of what's used to train driverless cars to recognize stop signs. So what a driverless car does is it uh, recognizes a stop sign, and then it launches a subroutine uh, that, uh, that says, all right, slow down and stop before the line uh, that... Uh, that is right before the stop sign. Uh, and again, this is, you know, in the U.S., it, we have stop signs and lines, and the roads are pretty well maintained. Uh, so it's a very geographically, uh, geographically bounded uh, problem. Um, but these image recognition algorithms are very easily defeated. So if I were to go around and I were to put, like, a sparkly unicorn sticker onto a stop sign the self-driving car would no longer recognize it as a stop sign and would go straight through and would cause an accident. And that's not safe. I, there are, so there are all kinds of flaws in the programs as they are implemented that I, I think advocates are minimizing. Another thing to think about is the jobs that are going to be taken away. Yeah from uh, taxi drivers, from rickshaw drivers. Um, And another thing to think about is the invisible labor that all of these workers do. Uh, So I get motion sick, for one thing. And I am going to admit something embarrassing now, which is that I have thrown up in taxis and i 'm not the only person in the world who has done this, and I you know hopefully like open the door and it 's not a problem but i 've talked to ta- talked to taxi drivers and it 's not an uncommon problem. Taxi drivers are you know familiar with this problem uh, and in fact in chicago there 's kind of a standard fine of two hundred dollars if you throw up in a taxi and it 's like posted in the taxi. This is so common so I would ask, who's going to clean driverless cars? Like, if there's no driver, then inevitably, like some taxi is going to show up and pick you up, and it's going to be like full of garbage because cars get full of garbage. who It's the going glass? to have a pile of vomit in it.
1: Who'll put down the glass? <laughs> That's
2: hardly totally going to stop autonomous cars. They're just going to drive off to someone who's going to clean them, or there'll be a cleaning robot. So. I, I, I think there's a, a, a modest problem that will be fixed.
1: <laughs> but uh, what about the possibility of hacking into driverless cars? Yeah, we, we
2: should be very worried that mm. the, the cybersecurity of vehicles isn't adequate today, and they've already driven cars off the road. Um, we're going to have to beef up uh, the cybersecurity of our devices, not just our cars, actually everything in our homes, um, because they will become targets. And um, uh, But equally... You know, it's like all technologies. There's good and there's bad that's going to come with it. And it's about us working about how can we get the good? How can we not get the people being killed by road traffic accidents? How can we give people the mobility? The people you've got to remember the other positives, right? So, um, uh, aged people are too old to drive. My father just stopped driving because he said he said he's not safe to drive anymore. Well, he's lost his mobility. It's really changed his life badly. But he'll get that back with driverless cars. Uh, young people who are too young to drive. Disabled people who aren't actually physically able to drive, all of those will be given the mobility that, uh, that us uh, able-bodied uh, people take for granted. So there, there are plenty of benefits that can come, but how do we make sure that we don't get the negatives? I mean, as an, another benefit. We have uh, the, mo- the most recent terrorist weapon today is a truck that you rent. And terrorists around the world in Nice and various other places in Ber- Berlin, um, have rented these trucks and driven them into people. Well, that won't be able, possible in 20 years' time, because every car will have a camera that, when it sees a person in front, will just stop. And you <laughs> won't be able to drive cars into people anymore. And terrorists won't be able to use that weapon anymore. It will just go away. So there, there are lots of benefits that we can have, if we can work out all the challenges that Meredith is talking about. I mean, there, you know, like all technologies, there will be challenges. But in... Fifty years time, it will be like horses. Most of us don't know how to ride a horse anymore, but hundred years ago, most of us did. Mm. Uh, only rich people who do it as a hobby will have will be able to um, drive cars. And any rich like rich people can drive uh, ride horses today.
1: Mm.
0: Well, well, I mean, let's uh, let's do talk about weaponization of cars um, because I I hear you that. Uh, that terrorists won't be able to drive cars into groups of people or drive them into buildings. But what they will be able to do is fill the trunk with C4 and cause an explosion. Or what they will be able to do is fill a driverless car with fertilizer soaked in gasoline and leave it in a parking lot or uh, drive it over a bridge and trigger it. So, I mean, there are lots of other uh, They, could, they can already do that today
2: with... with with cars that they, they brainwash people to do in, so that's, yeah that 's not going to go away that, that exists today, and again, you know, um, technology is only one part of the solution as, as, as ever, but um, I don't think autonomous trucks or cars make this any of greater challenge uh, offers the potential for, for some some significant benefits so we, no, no technology comes purely with just benefits. Mm. Um, everything, antibiotics, which is, you know, the, the technology you can think of that has almost the most benefits, um, does have a few negatives. I mean, we do become, you know, antibiotic resistant. Um, it, it does, you know, make us run the risk of becoming a bit complacent to the challenges that some of these diseases have that pose the world. But um, like all technologies, you're not going to have 100% good things come with it. just as as with any other technology.
1: Right. Uh, Meredith, you are a data journalist, and uh, it's using data to tell stories and finding stories in numbers. I find that uh, really um, interesting. Tell us a bit about your work as a data journalist.
0: Well, so what I do as a data journalist uh, is uh, similar to what investigative journalists do, um, but I use... uh, data sets in order to find stories. So one of the things that I do in my classes is uh, I teach students how to find data, Mm -hmm. uh, and then I teach them how to analyze the data using uh, various technological tools, and I teach them how to turn those insights into stories, which is easier said than done, Mm -hmm. because data uh, data can seem opaque, and so you really have to Uh, you have to get into the questions of who made the data. What was the ideology of the person making the data? uh, What agenda were they trying to promote Mm -hmm. in making this data? Uh, And when you think about things like that, you can push back against decisions that were made using that data that were unfair. Because there are there are lots of problematic decisions that are made with data, just like there are lots of problematic decisions that are not made with data. And one of uh, the things that journalists do is uh, we act as watchdogs. We act as... Uh, we, we hold decision makers accountable. Um, so one of the things we do in this new technological world is we use data in order to do that. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the things I like to think about when I think about data is uh, I like to think about a friend of mine who teaches first grade. And uh, he has this project where every Monday, uh, two of the first graders in his class go around and count the pockets of the kids in the room. And they make tally marks on a sheet of paper. And it's very cute like, to imagine these little kids going around and counting pockets, right? Because kids think pockets are really fascinating. They're like, oh, what could be in the pocket? And they keep all kinds of weird stuff in there. Uh, So ultimately, all data is socially constructed. Ultimately, all data is constructed by people who are doing the equivalent of these first graders who are going around and counting pockets. And so when we think about it that way, we can pull apart the social forces that go into creating data, and we can pull apart what kind of agenda might be happening behind the scenes. So, for example, we can uh, understand uh, you know, the ways that uh, racial inequality and gender inequality is perpetuated inside technological systems by looking at you know, who makes the data uh, and what are they doing with that data.
1: Great. My, my next question um, is
0: relevant because we are sitting at
1: probably one of the world's largest literature festivals. I'm also a poet who works for a technology company, Um, So, what is the relationship, according to both of you, between literature and AI? Is there one at all?
2: Well, there's a a deep question which goes back more than 200 years Hmm. to Ada Lovelace, the very first computer program, the daughter uh, of Lord Byron, uh, a mathematical prodigy, who um, is generally considered to be the first person to write a computer program. And she she despite the fact that she realized that this computer didn't just manipulate numbers those numbers could stand for musical notes or letters in a letters in a sentence she said um, but the computer has no pretense to originate anything which raised the question that's haunted the field ever since which is could computers ever be said to be creative and therefore could they ever create any literature um, and of course, the jury is still out on the answer to that question. Um, but the answer I give in my book is that if it, the answer is yes, and I suspect we can get computers to create things at the surface level that are as that match those that humans create—paintings and music and and, and maybe literature—we just won't care because they won't speak to the things that are human. They won't speak about love and loss and mortality because those are only things that humans experience yeah. and so maybe at a surface level hmm. we can get machines to make these sorts of works of art and create things that say that look like the things that human authors human painters human musicians create that um, we just won't care about those things the machines make as much and yes. so the job of a writer i think is one of the safest jobs the job of a taxi driver good to know um <laughs> is one that uh, we should be talking about about. what's going to happen to those jobs.
1: Right. So, you know, because we also have these absurd things like the Legado machine. I mean, Jonathan Swift wrote about it in his Gulliver's Travels ages ago where you had this little, you had this largest machine uh, which could generate phrases and words, and you have an online version of it these days. So, yes, Meredith, what what is your view? Well,
0: I, I will say I am very worried about writer's jobs. Uh, I think more writers should have jobs. I think there should be more funding for the arts uh, all across the world. Um, I would uh, would answer this question about AI and literature uh, by talking about uh, the emerging literature of technology. So Mm. for uh, the first decades of the Internet Revolution... Uh, technology journalism was uh, very much about boosterism. It was about, oh, look, the new iPhone is coming out. Oh, look, here's this new thing that's going to change the world. And it's, it was very one note for a while. Um, there wasn't much nuance to it. So I'm really excited about uh, the way that the literature of technology is changing nowadays. Um, so I, I have a background as a creative nonfiction writer, uh, as, in addition to being a computer scientist. Um, so one of the things I try and do in the book is I try and tell stories that, uh, that involve technology, that are true stories, um, but I try and take uh, principles of literary journalism and apply them to Uh, storytelling and kind of empowerment around technology. And I think there's something really interesting happening in the literary world right now uh, with a lot more people uh, doing kind of more boundary-pushing, transgressive work around technology. Um, There's a book by Sophia Noble called Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines uh, Reinforce Racism. Uh, That's a really terrific book. There's a book called Programmed Inequality by Marie Hicks, uh, which is about how uh, women were pushed out of the computer science profession in Britain uh, right after computers were invented. Um, There's a book called Brotopia by Emily Chang that is about uh, the sexist culture of Silicon Valley. Uh, There's, of course, Weapons of Math Destruction by Cathy O'Neill, which I'm sure lots of people in this audience have read. So, and there's, oh, and there's also uh, a new newsroom starting in New York called The Markup. It's by Julia Anglin and Jeff Larson, and they're the team behind ProPublica's really groundbreaking series, Machine Bias, that looks at uh, the ways that... Uh, well, that machines are biased Mm -hmm. uh, and takes an investigative journalism approach to it. So there's all this really groundbreaking work happening, and I think it's a really exciting time for writing about technology. So I'm really excited to see what happens next.
2: I want to echo my support for that, because technology has been changing society, but we're now starting to have a more nuanced conversation, uh, which I think is fantastic, which both Meredith and my books actually... Uh, I think you know, the, the main purpose of my book, at least, and I, I, the, what I got from reading her book, which is that society gets to change technology as well. Mm-hmm. It's not something that we just have to accept. It's not something that um, technologists like myself or uh, others should be forcing on society. Society gets to choose, and we should be more careful. And we're not, we haven't been very careful, and we're starting to pay some of the prices we see with all the scandals that happen with Facebook and, and, and some of the other tech companies, that we have to be more careful. Um, And so it's great that we start to have these more nuanced conversations about how to get the best out of the technology.
1: Fantastic. I think which is exactly why uh, the future is now when we start thinking about this and start making the choices. Thank you
0: for listening to Jepper Vets. A podcast produced by Lonchora in association with the Z. Jeopard Literature Festival.